Well, it's good to be here. It's good to be before you. We are in the book of Amos. We've been a few weeks since we've been back there, so as you turn there, I'll begin. You might not recognize the name, but Henrik Schleiman found something extraordinary in 1874. Just three years earlier, he began to fulfill a dream he had since his youth. He started excavating an ancient city in Turkey, and he was looking for the lost city of Troy. And to the amazement of many, this retired businessman found it. Today you can still see the ruins of the towers and the walls, which were 16 feet thick. And, and Schleiman's desire to, he, to find this ancient city of Troy can be traced back to his fascination with the Greek stories that surrounded it. One of those stories is found in Homer's Iliad. According to Homer, the Greeks besieged Troy for 10 years without success, and then when the warrior Achilles was killed, many wanted to give up the fight. But the king of Ithaca uh, came up with a plan to get the Greek army into Troy. Do you know what it was? It's kind of a bunch of mumbling there, I don't know. It was a horse. Odysseus built an immense wooden horse, and he hid warriors inside of it. 23, they guessed, 23, 30, 15, they're not sure, of their finest and most skilled warriors. After leaving it at the gates of Troy, the Greek army then sailed away. As to say, look, we're, we're done. This is a, a, a present for you. And the Trojans, thinking the Greeks had really given up um, and, and had left the, the, the horse as a gift, guess what they did? Come on, you guys all know this, right? Your, your kids don't, so kids, listen up. They wheeled it in. And, and there was a heated discussion, they say, of, of many that, that fought that. And that night, while the Trojans were sleeping, the Greek ships then quietly returned. The soldiers and the horse slipped out, opened the gates, and the Greek army quietly entered Troy and started fires all throughout the city. And the Trojans woke to find their city in flames, and as they tried to flee, they were killed by the waiting Greeks. They were deceived into thinking they had won the battle that they were now safe and secure within their walls, 16 feet walls. That, that's serious, right? The security they've built up, we're, we're safe. Nothing can harm us. They were deceived. Deception. A, a person who is deceived, by definition, does not even know they are deceived. Scary, right? This is what we find when we come back to the book of Amos. The first few chapters we find out God's hatred of sin and how he will deal with the sin of the nations that don't know him, how he will deal with sin. But then he sets his sights on his own people. They have been deceived and they don't know it. Subtly, pride and foolishness had seeped into their lives and had tainted everything. It tainted their lives, their worship, their sense of security. And so this morning we come back to the book of Amos and we're going to look at the rest of chapter 5 and all of chapter 6. And so here's the main idea. This is the main thrust of the sermon this morning. Carelessly following God can deceive us into a false hope, a false worship, and a false pride. So there's three points as we go through here. I'm a good Baptist preacher. Three points. The deception of their future, the deception of their relationship, the deception of their security. So I'm going to pray. I'm going to pray for our time in the Word. I'm going to pray for you. I'm going to ask that you pray for me. Okay? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for being with us this morning. 
God, I thank you for your people who have gathered here today, and I pray for the ability for them to listen. I pray that they will not fall into these deceptive traps of a false hope and a false worship and a false pride. That you, Holy Spirit, would give insight to your people this morning. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. So, we're going to be in Amos. If you haven't turned there, please do. Chapter 5, it's on page 720 if you're using one of the, the Bibles provided there in the seats. And, and it'll help you to have a Bible open, okay? First point, the deception of their future. See, right off the bat here, the people are longing, we'll read, they're longing for the day of the Lord. They are convinced that when that day comes, there'll be a day of salvation for them. Look at chapter 5, verse 18. Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. Why would you have the day of the Lord? It is darkness and not light. As if a man fled from a lion and a bear met him, or went into a house and leaned his hand against the wall and a serpent bit him. Is not the day of the Lord darkness and not light and gloom with no brightness in it? Amos is such a cheery book. I don't know who chose this book, but... It is a challenge, but there's stuff for us to learn. It's been a challenge to my heart. And this is the problem that Israel had. And I think it applies to us in the church in some ways. So I'm praying that you receive this well, but there's a lot of tough stuff in these, in these three points of this chapter and a half. The problem with Israel at this time, and this is why Amos launches this in in verse 18, is that the vast majority of people in Amos' day were self-deceived into believing that they're all right with God. And therefore, they were safe. And and, and they were longing for God's coming. And God's coming wrath. God's wrath would come upon people, and they're thinking "It's, it's good, it's coming on them. We're safe. And it's, it's, it's alarming, actually. In verse 18, the form of the Hebrew word desire is translated desired selfishly or lusting or craving. They're craving for God's wrath to be poured out. And it's troubling because they're convinced that they're good with God. That their spiritual resume, their good deeds, their worship, their offerings, that's got to count for something. I'm going to be safe. And they're enemies. Whoa, they're enemies. I, I want God's wrath to be poured out on my enemies. They're longing for the day of the Lord. They want all evil to be wiped out, and they don't understand themselves. And so Amos's illustration, I don't know if you found that interesting, but it should be terrifying to us here in verses 19. Did you catch it there? You're walking along, minding your own business, and and out pops a lion, and you run. It's coming for you. You run, and you escape, only to find a bear. And the bear is now chasing you, and you run from the bear, only to escape into a cabin. And you're you're breathing, you're thinking, finally, I escaped the lion, I escaped the bear, and you put your hand on the wall, and what bites you? A serpent. He's saying to God's people, you, you see it. You will see the destruction. You will run. You will think you're safe. And he comes. You can't run from God's judgment. See, what God's people were doing was, was really, uh, they've become 
proficient at listening to sermons for their enemies. And I just wonder, I've brought this up before, I'll just do it again. You're really good at that, aren't you here, right? Do we come in on Sunday and we listen to the sermon for someone else? Like, I'm glad Jeff is really going here because my spouse really needs to hear this. Oh, get there, Jeff. Just get there. My kid really needs to hear this. And you're coming in and you're just thinking, oh yeah, this is good. I can't wait to hear this and to share this with others. And continuing to think, it, it doesn't apply to me. I'm good. All, all eyes are off yourself. All eyes are on someone else. This is how, Am- this is how the people of Amos' day thought about it. And, and, and Amos says to them, again, of a warning, why would you have the day of the Lord? It's darkness and not light. Is not the day of the Lord darkness and not light, the gloom with no brightness in it? They knew what would happen on the day of the Lord, but they had deceived themselves into thinking and believing that they're the ones to be saved on that day. And in fact, they were in with a crosshairs of God's judgment. They'd convinced themselves of this. See, friends, their theology was correct. They're spot on. The day of the Lord would come to defeat God's enemies. But their assessment of themselves was wrong. They weren't safe. They, had, they were deceived. They're, they're going to be judged in their sin of the rejection of God, and they would be destroyed. I mean, isn't this the same warning that Jesus gave at the beginning of Luke's gospel? If you remember, we just finished it, right? It's been a while, though. But we just read it in our Bible reading plan. If you're in it, Luke chapter 3, verse 7. He said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits in keeping with repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. See, in that moment, Jesus is going to the Jews and saying, don't go back to your spiritual resume. That won't save you. And they were convinced. The Jews in Jesus' day believed they were good. I'm protected. I've got mom and dad, and I got the lineage. I'm safe. I've got the get-out-of-jail card. I'm good. And I can live any way I please. But Jesus wouldn't endorse the behavior. He says, even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. He's preaching to the Jews, to God's people, who were trusting in themselves. See, what Amos is doing and, and what I seek to do is to encourage you to examine yourself this morning. To see if you've placed your faith not on something external, but you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ and him alone. Jesus' words further in Matthew 7 should be sobering. He says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. 
See what Jesus is saying there is that they're deceived. They've had confidence in themselves, and he's, he's warning them the same that Amos is warning here. And then Jesus says, this is the, the, the famous part of the sermon, but very important to say, well, how do I know? Jesus says in, in verse 24, Matthew 7, everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the... Did we sing that as a kid? Come on, we built our house on the... Rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rains fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell and great was its fall. So Jesus is saying to them, do you, know, wanna, you wanna have confidence? Build your house on me. Build your life on me. What are you building your life on? Some of you, I surmise, possibly are building your lives on a commitment that you made at camp at 13, on the sheet of paper that you threw into the fire. And that's where your faith is, on the sheet in the fire. Because your life since 13 is nothing close to following Jesus. And you think, my faith is here. That's not what saved you. If you're saved, your commitment isn't what saves you. Who saves you? The Sunday school answer, Jesus does. It's a good answer. Jesus is what saves us. And so we build our life on him and not our decision. And so when doubts arise in your heart, you don't have to go and, and search the house for the Bible that has written the date when you were baptized and look for hope in that date. That's not where you look, friends. And I speak from experience as a teenager struggling with, with doubt. And, and good, well-meaning adults saying, just find the baptism certificate, Jeff. But that didn't bring me hope. That didn't bring me confidence. I needed to find Christ. He's the one that saved me. And so parents, I'm just going to encourage you parents, when your kids doubt their salvation older, don't freak out. You didn't save him to begin with. Point them to Jesus. He's the one that saved him. Maybe the doubts are real. Maybe it's because they're not saved. And where do you want him to go anyways? You don't want him to go to a certificate on the frame in the wall, right? You want him to go to Jesus. You want him to go to the rock. And so, friends, if, if you're sitting here thinking, yeah, I do have doubts, I do have struggles, I say, go to Jesus. Lean into him. Take your doubts to him. Maybe there's unconfessed sin. Maybe you've never placed your faith in him. Don't look for externals to give you comfort. Look only to Jesus Christ, and he will give you comfort. He is the one who saves. Well, the uncomfortable message isn't over for Israel or for you. Amos continues to expose their deception. And second point, the deception of the relationship. It gets worse. They're deceived into believing that their relationship with God is all good because of their offerings and their worship. And see, the Israelites at this point were feeling pretty safe, pretty secure in God. And how does God view their worship and their relationship with him? Look at verse 21. I hate, I despise your feasts 
and I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the peace offerings of your fattened animals, I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs to the melody of your harps. I will not listen. I came across the shocking stat this week. It's shocking to me simply because I, don't, I just don't believe it. I don't see it play out. But Barner, Barna Research came out a couple years ago with a stat that said that most Americans do not expect to experience hell. Just half of 1% expect to go to hell. Half of 1% they say, yeah, I'm going to hell. Nearly two-thirds of Americans, 64% believe they're going to heaven. I mean, it just, it, it's, it leaped off the page. One half of 1%. And if, I, if that was true, I think we'd see the effect of it. So based upon that stat, I would surmise there'd be a lot of people right now who are deceived. They're deceived about their relationship with God. 99.5%. Of Americans believe they're all good. Well, there were a lot of deceived people in Israel. They believed things were good with God. And why did they believe that? Well, just look at their worship. Just pop into their worship service. I mean, it's genuine. It is, it is amazing. It's real. It's sacrificial. Their budget was huge. Their fervor was mighty. Their singing was off the hook. Do you say that anymore, kids? Is that really old of me to say that? It was just, it's just lit. That's the right phrase, right? It's just something to come into their worship gatherings. I mean, just look at it and feel the emotion. Just charged up, man. They just loved it. I mean, everyone thought we're good. And Amos says, you're deceived. And he dives into the descriptions of their worship gatherings, their feasts. He mentions the three major feasts, the, the burnt offerings, which was the most common, and the grain offerings, and, and last, the peace offerings. The burnt offerings mentioned elsewhere says it's a whole burnt offering, which signifies an offering is completely consumed by the fire. The burning of a whole animal means that they belong wholly to the Lord. So it would normally represent the total devotion to the Lord by the one who's offering the animal. And so what that means is if they're doing these, these uh, the burnt, whole burnt offerings, if they're doing this, what Amos says they are, is that it's very possible to present a whole burnt offering of an animal and not really mean it. They had convince themselves they're good. They could lie. They could offer this offering and then hold back their lives from total devotion to the Lord. The grain offering was a gift to the Lord to ensure good relations or to appease him when he was wrong, when they were wronged. The last was a peace offering of a fattened animal and it was shared with the priests. It's a sign of the covenant being shared together between them and, and by sharing the sacrifice, the worshiper demonstrates his union with the Lord. But it wasn't just the offerings that Amos pinpoints here, right? No, it's the music that accompanied their worship. Music was an important part of Israelite worship. There would be loud singing, boisterous singing, playing of many instruments. 
And where the, where the Lord once invited his people to praise him with their music and delighting in their praise, he now says that their worship was a noisy racket. And he wouldn't listen anymore. Why? Why had it come to this? Because their expressions of worship through song had become a charade as the rest of their worship through their offerings. See, the people, when they gathered to worship in Israel, gathered and put on their worship personas. Did you know that was possible? You know, it happens all the time. You might think that masks came about during COVID. Well, masks have been along, around a long, long time. And these type of masks don't protect you or from passing on sickness. People have been wearing masks to church for a long time. They wear masks to protect them from other people. And they wear masks to protect them from God. Like God can't see who they really are. Like God can't see deep within our hearts. So God doesn't just see us and see what we do and hear what we say. He sees us all the way down and he knows why we do it and why we say it. And we might be able to fool others around us. Friends, we can't fool God. We only see the outward appearance. But as we learn in 1 Samuel, God sees the inward. He sees you all the way down. We cannot hide from God. And these people had grown complacent in their lives. They thought everything was fine. Everything's fine. Everything's good. We're good. God's still got our backs. I mean, don't, don't you realize how well we're living? I mean, they, they had a good, comfortable lives. And he would think back, the Exodus, I remember the Exodus, how God took care of us. He's going to do it again. He's got our back. We're fine. So what? We, uh, yeah, we re-rigged the justice system. You know, we, we, we do this to, to benefit us, but, but God's okay with that, I think. I mean, we can't be as bad as the other nations. Those nations are bad. They're terrible. And so, yeah, we do abuse poor people. And we do live comfortable lives, but, but God's going to, he's just going to overlook that. Does God overlook sin? I mean, we might mentally, intellectually say, no, God doesn't do that. If you've been in church at any time, you say, no, God doesn't do that. But practically, don't answer out loud. Just think, practically, this week, did you convince yourself that God will overlook your sin? Are you hoping that God will just overlook your sin? Friends, here's the answer of whether or not God will overlook your sin. Look at verse 24. If you underline any verse in this book, as long as it's your Bible, underline it. Because this is the centerpiece of the book. But let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. 
The title of this series in Amos is Let Justice Come. Even though all signs point to judgment coming, he's even right now in verse 24 calling them to do the right thing. They should let justice roll down on their lives even though it will affect them. Even though they're going to have to change how they live, how justice is meted out at the gate with those in in charge and poor people, even though they abuse people that are in their charge, even though all those consequences, they needed to let justice roll down on them. And they refused. And because they will not do these things, God will bring justice and it will roll down like water and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Amos is, is telling them clearly justice is coming. And just in case their inner lawyer rises up to defend themselves, Amos continues to emphasize the truth that all, all of their religious activities are not at the heart of the Lord's requirement for his people. And he talks about the wilderness. He talks about the 40 years of the Lord protecting and providing for them. And then he asks them through Amos in verse 25, did you bring to me sacrifices and offerings during the 40 years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? And the expected answer is an emphatic no. But that's not what we read. Clearly in Exodus 18, some sacrifices were offered, but they were by no means elaborate into the full sweep of sacrifices that were not offered during that time in the wilderness. And why is this important? Because their relationship with the Lord was not contingent upon their obedience to any elaborate system of sacrifices or offerings, but exclusively and uniquely on the devotion to the Lord expressed an absolute love for God and love for one's neighbor. God never wanted a show. He wanted their hearts. So even though they're in the wilderness and they didn't have all the trappings of of everything built up beautiful, it didn't matter. He wanted them. And so Amos launches now in verse 26 with some real sarcasm. Anyone appreciate sarcasm? Who they truly worship. You shall take up Sikath, your king, and Kirion, your star god, your images that you made for yourselves. Just go ahead, guys. Just go worship the king, worship the star god that you're already doing. Verse 27, and I will send you into an exile beyond Damascus, says the Lord, whose name is the God of hosts. These people had fundamentally divided minds. There were the truths about God that they heard preached from the law, that they sang, they sang about their God, and on the other side was their sin. And never did the two come together. Never did those two meet. That the truth that they knew about their God, it would never come in contact with their sin and allow it to affect their sin and destroy their sin. No, they just kept it separate. They kept the sacrifices, even coming every day, singing in the midst of the temple. But all those sacrifices, all the giving, all the singing, never illuminated their their minds of the sin that was deep in their hearts. 
It never came in contact with all the injustice that they were inflicting on other image bearers that lived around them. No, they kept it separate. They, they went to church and did the church thing and sang with gusto and gave and they'd leave and go live their lives however they pleased. Never two for the, those two to, to meet. And I wonder, do you do the same thing? Are you doing that right now? Gathering on Sundays, singing the truths about God, but never letting the truths about God sink deep within your heart and affect your life. You know, today, what we're saying, what can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Do you, do you just sing that and don't believe it? We come gathered together on Sundays letting the truths about who God is and allowing those truths to come face to face with the greed in our heart and the selfishness or the oppression of someone else? Or do you do church on Sunday mornings? You get dressed and you get your mask on, all set to fool everyone as you go to church. But on Monday, you do something totally different. On Monday, you can go to work and subtly steal from your employer. Or students, you go to school and you you cheat on that test because you got to get an A. Or you go home in the evening and you sneakily watch something that you know is inappropriate that will not help you. And you lie and you deceive yourself that you're really okay with God as to remove the burden of guilt that you feel. You know, it's easy to build a wall, an impenetrable wall, a 16-foot wall between ourselves and God, between our sin and God, and come every week and never let the two meet. And why do we do that? Why is it that we build this wall and never let our sin meet God? One reason is simply we don't want to do the work. It's work to bring our sins to God and to humble ourselves before him and his word. It's work to read the Bible and to read it faithfully and to show yourself who you are in light of it and to take your sin to God. It's much easier to sit in a service and let the word of God preached just wash over you and listen and acknowledge points of agreement here and there and then on the way out compliment the preacher. It's just easier that way. But it takes work. It takes work to sit and listen under the word of God when it hurts and to take notes and and some points of reference that you know the Spirit of God is bringing to your attention and to work through those during the day or the next week and to confess it to God and to seek change. It takes work to confess your sins and to follow Jesus. It's work to grab one of those truths and apply it to our life and seek the Lord and ask him and beg for him to change you into the likeness of his son. It takes work. And it's easier to not do it. 
Another reason I believe that we don't do the work of applying God's truth on our sin is that we simply like our sin. We defend it. We protect it. We insulate it. We say things like, well, that's your opinion. That's your opinion, Jeff. You can have that opinion about the Bible. I don't have that opinion. I'm not really hurting anyone, actually. I've never felt the strong need to change. The Holy Spirit hasn't told me otherwise. It's not that bad. Uh, There's much worse sins out there, Jeff. And so you protect it. And you keep those sins like little pets in your lives. And you feed them and nurture them and hide them. You're going to protect them so that no one takes them away. And when the word of God comes in contact with your sin, and you know it, and you see it, and you know what needs to be removed to be cut out, to be burned, and to be killed, you think, I I can't do this. And you protect it. And you're comfortable with that sin. And you hide. And so the best thing then to do in your mind is, is the safest thing is to, to, to not let the word of God come in contact with it. So, so you stop reading the word. And, and then eventually you just stop missing church because it's really uncomfortable. Pastor Jeff is really uncomfortable. I'm just not going to, there's other things. My work schedule changed. I slept in. I, I'm just not going to do that. I'm going to miss the daily reading because I'm just really busy. Or or you do come and you say, I'm not going to make any friends. I'm not going to join a church. I'm not going to become a member. I'm not going to have any friends. I'm not going to reach out to anyone. I mean, you think, I have friends. I have work friends. And and I go to those work friends, and it's easier. You know why? Because they never ask me about God. In fact, they're happy to never ask me about God. And I'm more comfortable there because I have this sin, and I know I have this sin, and I don't want to deal with this sin. So I have friends, uh, and, and, I'll, and I'll go there, and, and what happens, friends, is you're more comfortable in the world than you hear as the gathered worship. And God has appointed a way by which he will enable us to hold our confidence in him firm to the end, and it's through the local church. to develop the kind of Christian relationships in which you help each other hold fast to the promises of God and escape the deceitfulness of sin. I feel like I get, I mean, tired of saying this, but I, I know we need it. Friends, church is not an event. I don't care what other people are doing. It's a gathered family. And, and I know some of you are, have right reasons even for, for, for holding people at, at arm's length. There's other things that have gone on, so I'm not trying to, to, to dismiss that. Friends, you need one another. You will not make it to the end by yourself. And so you need other Christian relationships to help you and to encourage you to exhort you another day in and out, to stand fast, to put on the whole armor of God. See, God knew this about us and he made a way and he died for his bride, which is the church, so that we can live in this world, so that we can make it. And you will not make it in this life if you refuse to lean into a church, 
if you refuse to develop relationships with the church. And I'm not saying just like little friendships, you know, like, hey, you just, would you, would you eat last week? What shows you're watching? I'm talking about friendships like, where are you struggling in your spiritual life? How can I pray for you? If you think being a part of a church is just having bingo nights together, friends, you're wrong. It's being involved in each other's lives. And so men, it takes work for you to go find another man in the church and confess to them that you're addicted to porn. And they need to hold you accountable. They need to read the Bible with you because you, just, you know you can't get out of it by yourself. You need to take students to, to, to develop relationships with other students and leaders because the temptation at school is so strong to smoke marijuana, to do drugs, and to get sucked into that. And you need others in your life. Moms, it takes work to find another sister and to confess to her that you can't get along with your husband, that it seems like you're just fighting all the time. It takes work. See, friends, you can't serve two masters. You cannot serve God in the sin that you love. You can't do it. You need help in your walk with God. You need a church. You need to understand what discipling is. How many people are in the equipping class, Chris? 20, 30? There's like 90 of you here. If you don't know what discipling is, you need to be here next week at 9.15. You need to develop relationships with people. You need to make it more than just popping in and popping out. And find a friend that will help you walk with Jesus Christ. And if you're doing well, praise the Lord. Go find someone else to help them. Praise the Lord you're doing well. And if you're unsure, come to me. I'll point you in the right direction. But friends, as we look at Amos and as we look at Israel, they had deceived themselves. They couldn't see it. They were deceived about their future. They're deceived about the relationship with God and they needed others to point it out to them because they loved them. You know, no one takes any joy and pride to come alongside another brother and sister and say, I see sin in your life. They, they don't enjoy that. It's not enjoyable but it's meant for the repentance and the walking with Jesus Christ. That's, what, that's why we do that. So we can walk with him. Well, that's the first two points. Now the third. The deception of their security. They're deceived into thinking that their strong military will now provide security from their enemies and they will be rudely awakened. See, for Israel, the Trojan horse had been brought into the city, and they think they're good. Look at verse 1 of chapter 6. Woe to those who are at ease at Zion, and to those who feel secure on the mountain of Samaria, the notable men of the first of the nations, to whom the house of Israel comes, pass over to Calne and see, and from there go to Hamath the great, and then go down to Gath of the Philistines. Are you better than these kingdoms? Or is their territory greater than your territory? 
O you who put far away the day of disaster and bring near the seat of violence, woe to those who lie in beds of ivory and stretch themselves out on their couches and eat lambs from the flock and calves from the midst of the stall, who sing idle songs to the sound of the harp and like David invent for themselves instruments of music, who drink wine in bowls and anoint themselves with the finest oils but are not grieved over the ruin of Joseph." Therefore, there they shall now be the first of those who go into exile, and the reverie of those who stretch themselves out shall pass away. We again find out that life for the Israelite was pretty good. We found out in chapter 3 that they have summer homes and winter homes. They're dressed pretty well. They had enough food and comfort, beds of ivory, stretched out on their couches, eating lamb. They felt secure in their land. The gates seemed impenetrable. Who's going to go against them? I mean, they're God's people, and they got the fortress. They're good. And the leaders, as we see in this verse 1, the notable men, they're complacent, they're lazy. They were living a life of ease, untroubled, and their attitude grew and inflated in their opinion of their spiritual preeminence. They're smug, They're confident of their ability to control their own destiny. They were the number one nation. No nation was as special as them. Israel the great. But Amos tells them to compare themselves to other cities. In verse 2, they weren't as great as they thought they were. But the leaders refused to learn from the history of their neighboring city-states. See, what 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 happened to their neighbors could happen to them, but they refused to believe that. And they dismissed any thought of a day of evil for them. They were convinced that the, that the day was only set up for God's enemies. And they're not God's enemies. They're God's people. But what they failed to see was that they might be God's enemies. Any thought of a day of disaster for Israel was, was just put off to the distant future. And the, the focus of the whole oracle shifts in these verses to self-indulgence of Israel's leading citizens. I mean, the, the citizens slept on the best beds. The poor could not afford a bed, much less one that was inlaid with ivory. And the word lounge here can be translated sprawling or hanging over, like a child on a couch watching something. You know what that is? Just come look at my kids. They don't sit like normal humans. They do this. These are adults, though. It's not a good thing. And so what's implied here is is laziness or drunkenness or both. The, the, The leading citizens of Israel ate the best food. Ordinary citizens probably ate meat only three times a year at the annual festivals, but not these guys. No, they had their pick. They could lounge around eating, drinking, making up songs, imagining themselves as little King Davids with a harp. They're just going to write music. And for the containers for wine, what does he say? Bowls. Not cups. Bowls. They were totally self-centered, totally preoccupied with the pleasures of life and blinded to the threatening reality that was coming their way. The Trojan horse was pulled inside the gate and they were deceived. They thought, we're good. 
the shocking thing was that the object of, of their faith had moved from the one true God to what the God had given them. And what is even more wicked at this point, they had taken credit for it. Listen, friends, when God ceases to be the full treasure of your heart, then your heart will fasten itself to pleasures and comforts in this life. And unless God intervenes, your addiction to comfort will make you hardened. It'll make it so easy to just leave, live for yourself. God has to intervene. Look at verse eight. The Lord God has sworn by himself, declares the Lord, the God of hosts, I abhor the pride of Jacob and hate his strongholds and I will deliver up the city and all that is in it. Pride feeds so many sins, doesn't it? Pride has dreadful offspring. It indulges our self-centered delusions and leaves us defenseless against temptations. Satan knows that his efforts to tempt us with illicit pleasures will meet with the greatest success when those temptations are accompanied by flattery. Maybe we could resist the pleasures if they're offered just by themselves, but our souls are ever hungry for the approval of other people. And so what pleasure cannot do itself, flattery can. Spurgeon said, when a man admires himself, he never adores God. These people, oh, they admired themselves. They had become proud. And God would humble his people. He would prevent them from being awed at themselves and cause them to be awed at him. And how would he do this? He would decimate them. He would destroy them. Verse 9, And if ten remain in one house, they shall die. And when one's relative, the one who anoints him for burial, shall take him up to bring the bones out of the house and shall say to him who is in the innermost parts of the house, Is there still anyone with you? He shall know. He shall say no. And he shall say, Silence. We must not mention the name of the Lord. For behold, the Lord commands, and the great house shall be struck down into fragments, and the little house into bits. Do horses run on rocks? Does one plow there with oxen? But you have turned justice into poison, and the fruit of righteousness into wormwood. You rejoice in low debar, who say, Have we not by our own strength captured carnium for ourselves? For behold, I will raise up against you a nation, O house of Israel, declares the Lord, the God of hosts. And they shall oppress you from Labo Hamath to the brook of Ereba. God announces judgment again. Those who were prideful in themselves will ultimately be humbled when God raises up Assyria to oppress them. See, God had allowed Israel to prosper, and now their prosperity would bring their destruction. Israel fell in love with their luxury and boasted in their strength and their wealth and they had become proud. 
It's amazing to see what people proudly put their trust in. Just the last week or two, I've been really fascinated with a, uh, a show on Netflix walking through World War II. I don't know how it is. You get older and you start to get fascinated with history, but I love history now. You may remember the famous Maginot Line between France and Germany. 1929 to 1938, the French built a line of defensive fortifications along their border with Germany under the direction of French war minister André Maginot. Heavy guns, thick concrete, air-conditioned living areas, areas for recreation, even built underground railways to all assure that the French would be safe against the Germans and their aggression. And when the German military began to build itself back under Hitler, the, the French smugly thought that they could ignore the matter. We have the Maginot Line. Of course, when the Germans finally invaded, they came through Belgium, outflanking the Maginot Line and rendering it utterly useless. It took 10 years for the French to build this. It took the Germans a few weeks to march around it. Friend, that is a small picture of what it means to trust anything apart from God. Spend as much time as you want building something. Imagine all the things it can protect you from, and it still won't protect you. We want our own Maginot lines. And then we want to put our trust in them. And so we give obsessive attention to our appearance and our bodies and our possessions and our accomplishments and our jobs and our friendships. And we trust in them to bring peace and security. And all these things, of course, are just extensions of our own power. They're reflections of our own ability, declarations of our own proud independence from God. But what if none of these things will last as long as you do? Consider for a moment, what is it that you expect will last as long as you do? And then ask yourself, what will you do if that thing doesn't last as long as you think it will. Some live their lives building their 401k as their security. That's where their trust is. You build your home from that vantage point. You just pour in time and effort and money into it. Sadly, Many pastors build a ministry, a church, their name, and that's where their hope is. And what if your employer, your wealth, your parents, or children, your house, your health, your ministry, a particular relationship, even your physical life does not last as long as you do? That's what the Bible teaches will happen. Just imagine for a moment you're standing in a stream and all those things that you have built into your life are sort of like defenses against the ever-flowing water coming towards you in the stream. And the water begins, as life goes, picking up speed and pressure. 
and all those things that you've built up and acquired and you've placed there, they're not lasting. In fact, they're deteriorating or breaking or burning. And you stand and you look into the distance and you see that the dam that was once there is now broken and the water is just flowing towards you. And you've built all those things up. They're your security and they're gone. And that dam up there in the distance, that dam was holding back God's justice against you. God's wrath towards your sin. See, the Bible says that every one of us is a sinner. Every single one of us doesn't only do sin, we're filled and controlled by sin that we perpetuate injustice and we run from righteousness. We are wicked to the core, deep down. All of us, we are against God. We're not just mildly intolerant to him, we hate him. We hate his holiness, we hate his justice and righteousness. And as you stand in that stream, you're seeing God's justice coming towards you. God said as much. 524, but let justice roll down like waters. It's coming. Justice against our sin is coming. And when justice reaches us, we won't be able to stand. We will be swallowed up in an instant. And just before God's justice reaches us, Jesus steps in and he takes it. Jesus takes the cup of God's wrath toward our sin and he drinks it down and he slams it down and Jesus says, it is finished. And what we see in the cross was that what was humanly impossible is done by Jesus who dies on the cross for our sins. All of the justice that we deserve is poured out on God's Son. And friend, if you've never turned from your sins, if you're not trusting in Jesus Christ, today is the day of salvation. I implore you to turn to him in faith, to trust in Christ alone. And Christian friend, we cannot forget this. We cannot get so busy that we forget the gospel. You know, I wondered this week, do we, do we love the idea of following the Lord more than we actually love the Lord? Are we possibly, as Christians, enslaved to comfort, addicted to luxury, and in our pride think that we really don't need God anymore? Are there areas in your life where it's just kind of sketchy? You've, you possibly are deceived into believing things that aren't true. You know, the, the, the Trojan horse story can easily happen in our lives as well. And we need the church. We need each other. 
We can become too confident in our relationship with God, somehow believing that it was our wisdom that saved us or, or our relationship or our, our heritage that brought us to this point in, in spirituality, but that's not what happened. It was all of God. It was all Him. That's why it's vitally important to, to take time to read the Word and to make prayer a priority. One of the reasons why I recommended those two books at the beginning of the service because I'm human too. We can get complacent in our, in our reading of the word. We can get complacent in prayer. We can even get complacent in our involvement in the church. Hebrews 3 says, take care, brothers, lest there be any of you an e- evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God, but exhort one another every day, as long as it's called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. We need the church. Sin is deceptive. Sin can harden us. So we need to lean into Christ, lean into one another, lean into the word and prayer, and keep following Jesus. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for this book, this minor prophet Amos. God, I thank you this morning for a church family that listens to the Old Testament and desires to know your word and apply it to their lives. And I pray that you would bring fruit from your word. God, I pray that you would raise up more preachers in our midst who love you, who want to be trained and come and preach the word. God, I pray that you would raise up more listeners who desire to not just hear it, but apply it, to come away changed based upon your word. So we ask for help. We need help. Help that we don't become conceited. Help that we don't continue to walk in deception of a relationship with you. We need help to be faithful to you. So I do pray that we will lean into relationships here, that we'll make it a priority. Time spent with you and time spent with others. And we'll do this all for your honor and glory. For we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.